Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. This morning, to get started, I thought that I would start out talking about something light, something that you guys probably thought about over your breakfast this morning or maybe on your drive here, and that's the attributes of God. Um, what I'd like to do is just maybe start out with a little bit of a review about maybe three attributes of God that we refer to often in the church world as the omnis, um, the fact that he is omniscient, omnipresent, and um, omnipotent. So what does that mean? So omnipresent means that God is everywhere all of the time. And that is just an absolutely beautiful and encouraging thing when you think about it, because when Christ ascended into heaven, what did he say? And surely I'll be with you always, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of danger you get in, you can have the comfort, you can have the assurance that God is always with you. That's pretty cool. The idea that he's omniscient, that God knows everything is also really cool and really comforting because even when you don't seem to have something figured out in your life or a plan that you had goes awry, you can trust knowing that God has a plan. He knows what you're going through and he knows it all. He knows everything. Same with the fact that God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. What a, what a comfort, what a joy to know that the God who sent his son has the power uh, to to conquer death, and because of that, gives us life. Gives us life in eternity, and life here on this earth, no matter what we come into contact with, there's nothing that is more powerful than him. We have a God who holds us in his hand. The fact that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent is a real comfort, but there's also another side to that coin, and that is may be a little scary for us. The idea that God is omnipresent, well, that also means that God's always with me. He's always with you. And he's always with us, even in maybe places and times where we wouldn't want God watching us. The fact that God is omniscient is a cool thing and a comforting thing, but it also means God knows every single one of your thoughts. He knows you better than you know yourself. And that means he knows things that you've thought about that you shouldn't or wouldn't want anyone else to know about. God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And that's a joy and a comfort. But it also means that he is the God who has and holds all power to judge me. And the wrong things that you have done, the wrong things that I have done. And that might make us a little uneasy. Do you catch it in our text today? It started out talking about that Jesus sat down opposite where the place where offerings were put, and he watched. He watched everybody. And it might make you a little uncomfortable to think that Jesus sat down and just watched people give. And he watches us give, too. And he doesn't just watch. And in fact, in our lesson for today, it not only says that he watched them, but the Greek text said that he, he watched in a way that he studied them, he assessed them, and he analyzed those we're giving. And the same God that did that then 
Well, he does it now. It might surprise you to know that in the lesson for today, it took place during Holy Week. It took place just days, three days before Jesus suffered for the sins of the world. Three days away, probably on Tuesday. And on Friday, Jesus would die for everybody's sins. And it might surprise you to think that's what Jesus decided to do on the Tuesday before he fulfilled the entire mission for which he came to the world. That Meanwhile, the entire Pharisees and Sadducees and Israelite rulers were plotting to kill him. Meanwhile, they were there, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Israelite rulers in the temple, trying to trip him up and trick him with questions. In between the time that Judas was uh, going behind Jesus' back, he wasn't worried about any of that. What he was doing was sitting and watching people give. If you and I were Jesus' personal advisors in any way, we might say, uh, Jesus, you have, you have bigger fish to fry than that. And first of all, Jesus, if, if this is like one of the things that you did with your final days, final hours here on this earth, Jesus, that, don't do that. You might give the impression that you think about what people give and you care about what give, people give. But I think that's precisely what Jesus wanted to show us. And what did Jesus see? Well, he saw this. He saw that many rich people threw in large amounts. That's not surprising. You might expect that. It's kind of what maybe the church world today expects, that people who have money give money. And that makes sense. Jesus' word talks about it. Luke chapter 12, he said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from those who have been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. But Jesus also says something about the way these people were giving. He said it was done with a lot of pomp and circumstance. I explained it to our kids' message before that it was a big show of what was going on. Well, what it would have been like if it took place in our church today is that as the plates were being passed, instead of just as we've been taught and trained by just our traditions and our culture of discreetly just, you know, setting your offering envelope in or taking care of giving online, what would have happened was someone would stand up after the plates have been passed and said, Usher, I have another envelope here to give more. And so everyone would watch as the plates were passed back and this individual gave just one more offering and really made a show of it. That's what was going on. But that's not all. During that show, Jesus also notices someone else. He says, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. This isn't surprising either. We would expect that someone who doesn't have a lot would give the minimum. And that's what two small coins were. They were the minimum amount that people could and would give at the temple in Jesus' day. If it wasn't for Jesus and Jesus pointing this woman out to the disciples, we probably wouldn't even notice it. But there's something very, very surprising about what took place. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Disciples looked at him and said, that doesn't make sense. Like two coins. It's the bare minimum. Did you see what that man just gave? 
Did you see what that family just gave Jesus? We've been sitting here watching the entire time. That can't be real. But Jesus explained that they all gave from what was left over. They all gave as just kind of icing on the cake. Jesus said she didn't even have cake. What she gave was her daily bread. She gave all that they had, all that she had. And what was she left with? You might be tempted to say nothing. But the reality is that she was left with everything. She was left with the promises of a God who said that he was there for her. She was left with the full amount of what God has given her and promised to her. She was left with her trust. She was left with her confidence. She was left with her faith in the living God. And that's the big point that I want you to take away from today, if you take anything, is that she gave beyond her ability, certainly. She gave sacrificially. But she gave in a way that trusted her ability? No, but the Lord's ability to care for her. Now, here's a question I have for you. Imagine if you were the widow's personal advisor, a friend or a family member. What advice would you have given her as she was about to walk up there and give her last two copper coins all that she had had? I think we'd all give her pretty close to the same advice. We'd say, yeah, Granny, that, that is a great offering that you're about to give, and I really appreciate that you're going to give it, and I, I know that you're going to give it eventually, but not now, not all of it. Like, listen, like, here, just keep some of it. God's going to appreciate it. He likes all of our offerings. Don't do that. Don't, don't give it all away. Keep, keep some. Like, no one would advise or encourage to give away everything, Right? And yet, if that's what we advised her to do, we would be discouraging the very thing that God encouraged her for, the very thing that God commended her for, that she gave that offering. Think about that. Often, you and I might make pious-sounding statements, which are nothing more than excuses for why not to give, instead of encouraging one another to give, to give the way that God talked about giving, to give the way that God encouraged us to give, sacrificially. Why is that? Why is it that people would discourage that kind of giving? I think it's pretty clear. When it comes to matters of giving, we often think about it as a matter of dollars and cents a matter that makes sense when I look at my wallet, when I look at my bank account. But God says it's not that. Giving is all a matter, an attitude of the heart. That's what it's about. So ask this, when's the last time that you opened up your hands, your heart and your mind, and you thought about giving sacrificially, giving in a way that really and truly trusted God and the promises that he makes. Let me give you two very frank examples this morning. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you invest in your retirement? How many of you think about and plan for your retirement? Well, the reality is that 
most people do this. The great majority of people put hundreds, if not thousands of dollars yearly into their retirement savings, that they give money over to Charles Schwab, Fidelity, and all these different groups. And what promises do these investment firms make to you? Well, actually, they make just this promise. They says in the fine print, past performance is no guarantee of future results. That's a promise they make. And yet we're willing to trust them. We're willing to trust them with lots and lots of our money. And what do they promise us? Really nothing. But think about this. You have a God who does the opposite. You have a God who promises this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So why do we trust financial institutions that make no promises and we fail to trust the God who makes certain and sure promises? Let me give you another frank example. How many of you would say it's a matter of faith and a matter of all out trusting God that you pay your electric bill every month or that you pay your gym membership every month? The reality is that it doesn't take really an act of faith. In fact, plenty of people without faith pay their electric bills every month. There's almost no faith action involved with that. The average electric bill per month here in the Commonwealth of Virginia is $124 per month. You know, a percentage of our faith family gives more to electric companies than the God who created atoms and electricity. A gym membership, the average gym membership, is $58 per month. What percentage of our faith family gives more to a gym membership than a God who created and sustains body and life. Why is it? Why is it like that? In our sermon series throughout this month, we've looked at the principles, the biblical principles of giving. We've taken this concept of tithing uh, that God uh, says to give 10%. We've kind of turned it on its head because the truth is that that is not something that God commands or demands from his people. And yet it's a good benchmark for faithful giving. But we said this is what God does command, demand, and expect from his people. That they give sacrificially. That's what we're talking about today. That they give in such a way that they trust on God. That they give proportionately. That they give in such a way where they look at what they have and, and they give an amount that is in proportion with what they have been given. That it is reflective of an attitude that understands that everything they have been given is from God. We talked about the principle of first fruit giving. The fact that God, who has given us the best, doesn't just get the rest and the leftovers from us, but we set aside the first fruits, the, the, the first portion of what we, what we have, and we give that to God. We give it thought first and foremost instead of an afterthought, instead of just a leftover tip. As you reflect on, on those things that that we've looked at and looked at what God's word says about, there's really only one reason why we fail to give God our first fruits. That's because he's not first in our hearts. 
There's really only one reason why we fail to give God a portion of what we have. It's because we forget that God owns everything. There's really only one reason why we fail to give sacrificially. It's because we forget that the God who sacrificed his son for us is going to take care of us in the same way that is reflected in the gift of Jesus Christ. Catch how this story ends? Mark doesn't tell us, actually, what happened to the widow after she gave her two offerings and went home. But I, I can't imagine that the God who praised her, commended her for the confidence and the faith with which she gave, let her go home and starve to death. I can't imagine that the God who who praised her in front of people and said she gave more than anyone else in the temple that day, allowed her to go home and live in complete nothingness until her dying day. God didn't do that. But you do know how the story ends because you do know what happened later that week, don't you? That the God of heaven offered us his all by giving us his everything, by giving us his one and only son. And he didn't just offer us two small coins of redemption. No, he offered us the complete double treasure of a perfect life, of an innocent death, so that you and I won't die, but have life in abundance with him forever. God knows about money. Jesus knew about money. That's how he was tempted in in the desert with Satan. Satan said, I'll give you all this worldly wealth. He knew that temptation and he beat it. Jesus knew about money. The day after this, he's going to drive people out of his temple for treating it like a house made for profit and selling things. Jesus knew about that. Just two days from now, he would be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. He knew about the temptation for worldly wealth. And yet he came to pay for all those sins. The Jesus Christ who who knew money, knew people. He knew you and me. And so two days after he praised this widow, on the cross, he looked at his mother, who, who was at that time a widow, and he took care of her worldly needs. But more than that, He didn't just see to it that she was safe and kept well because he cares in that way. He saw that all her sins, all the widow's sins, and all our sins were paid for. That two nail-pierced hands placed themselves on our hands and essentially ripped the death grip we have around worldly wealth and all that goes with it and frees us from that. By forgiving our sins of greed, by forgiving our desires of not trusting him, but instead trusting ourselves. Jesus never once thought a greedy thought in his life, but he paid for every greedy thought, every greedy desire that we have ever had in our life. Jesus knew what it was to commend someone. He commended this widow, and he also knew what it was like to be rejected. Because he was rejected by his father his Father in heaven, but he did it for us and so that in him we would not only have the forgiveness of sins for all of our misuse of money, but we would have eternal life. We would have the gift of salvation that not only sees to it that we have life with him, but we have the life here 
that is empowered and motivated to give it back to him. Jesus is still watching. <laughs> that might make you uncomfortable. Or it might give you a supreme amount of confidence that the God who lives and reigns above is here with you, watching you, cheering you on. Because as we give to him, we give what he has given to us. My friends, don't make the gifts that we give our God just an afterthought, just a tip, just a little thing at the end. But instead, make it an example, uh, a work of faith that we do out of deep-seated trust that the God who cares for our eternal lives also cares for our lives here. Amen.